0: All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hello everyone and welcome back to Your Brain on Science with myself, Elena, and Zarmin. Today we're going to be talking about a recent paper that came out looking at psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And on the topic of depression, we will be talking about suicide and self-injury. So we just wanted to give you a heads up there. This episode might not be for you.
1: Uh, today we're going to be talking about that new Compass Pathways study that was just published, um, titled "Single Dose Psilocybin for a Treatment-Resistant Episode of Major Depression." I'm sure that you've seen so many like crazy articles and article titles, um, but Elena and I are ready to talk to you guys about it um, because we'll we'll break it down and we also have some thoughts.
0: Yeah, so you can always uh, count on us to have some thoughts, right? So. <laughs>
1: This episode is dropping on my birthday. I turned 25 today. Yay. Happy birthday. <laughs> Yay. Everyone done so
0: Armin ten. for her Yay. birthday. Uh, so <clears> let's <throat> jump right into it. This study was done by a company called Compass Pathways, and it is a phase two trial. So what that means is um, it's gone through phase one, and it's been determined safe in healthy participants. So now moving to phase two. Um, this company is investigating psilocybin as a treatment for uh, treatment-resistant depression. So basically what Compass is looking for in this trial is to see if psilocybin um, can be useful in treatment-resistant depression. So they looked at two main things. They look at the uh, dose given, like what is the optimal dose for this treatment, and then they also look at how long this treatment can last. So um psychedelics are supposed to have a rapid effect, so really fast onset in being therapeutic. And it's also supposed to last a decent amount of time. So that's kind of what they're testing here.
1: Yeah. And I think before we get into some more details of the paper, I think let's talk about what Compass Pathways is. So Compass Pathways, I think, was founded by a few people over in England, Um, but it's basically a a company. So it's definitely a company. It has a ton of investors. Um, So they have a stake in psilocybin therapy working for them right um they have a bunch of investors that they have to keep happy and you know there are some threads about compass pathways and their right-wing investors and um just it gets a little interesting when you think about that but something very important to keep in mind because remember that's one of the things that we bring up who's writing this paper where is this data coming from um and what are their intended outcomes for all of this stuff uh so i think that's just good to keep in mind but yeah. I think yeah. And if
0: you're interested in learning more about, you know, who they are, who owns them, what's going on with trading, um, they do have stocks and they do have, um, you know, like stakeholders and stockholders that are all listed online. You can like go on CNN business and kind of look into that yourself if you're interested in that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about, about the methods now. Um, So as we mentioned before, this was a phase two double blind trial uh, where participants were randomly assigned to treatment groups. And I do want to mention this was also across various countries. Um, So these um, all of these investigations were happening. I'm trying to find this at 22 sites in 10 countries in Europe um, and also in North America. So Canada and the United States which I think is super, super cool. Um, So this was a dose finding trial. They mentioned that in the paper. Um, So in order to do that, they used three different doses of psilocybin. So there was 25 megs, which was the high dose, 10 megs, which was the moderate dose, and then one meg, which is supposed to act as their control. So you'll see here that there is no placebo. Um, And this sort of feeds back into how difficult it is to have a placebo in studies like this. This is supposed to be double blind, right? The participant nor the the psychiatrist or the therapist are supposed to know what drugs are on board and and especially what dose is on board, right? Um, But the participants were most likely able to guess if they had a high dose of psilocybin or a moderate dose or the the lowest dose, right? But they didn't ask that of the participants. So they mentioned that as a limitation in the end. And I think that's a very, very big caveat in something that you're calling double blind. And I know it's hard to blind um, in psychedelic trials, but that's something really, really important to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, that was the main critique I saw online about this paper too, is that they didn't um, ask participants to uh, guess their dose or their treatment. Um, in this case, I guess they all got treated with psilocybin. But um, and that is something we can talk about, you know, a little bit more after we get into the results um, and how that unblinding or not unblinding can affect. change the results.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Affect
0: these very subjective outcomes. The cool thing about this being a double-blinded trial and one of the things that um, I wanted to point out is that, you know, this is being done by a company who has stake in the results, but. Um, they do have an independent uh, contracted research organization that does assess the uh, rating skills that uh, were given to participants. Mm -hmm. So they don't know the details of the trial or like, they don't know anything about the trial. They're just given the scores and they just rate them. And then um, the statistical analysis of the data is also performed by that research org and the sponsor. So compass only reviews it and um, like does like, post hoc so after the fact analyses of the data so just wanted to point that out there that you know compass pathways isn't the one scoring it so there is that kind of blindness happening in the trial
1: yeah which i think is really really cool and definitely something that they did very well in this right will add to um sort of the resiliency of these results i think so what they did is they had various groups so they had these three groups and there were 70, 79 excuse me participants in the 25 mid group 75 in the 10-meg group, and 79 in the one med group. And of course, you have some attrition, um, and they talk about the details of that in the paper. Go, go read that if you're interested. Um, and what they did here is that uh, these participants all met eligibility criteria for treatment-resistant depression based on the DSM-5. So once they had they, they met the eligibility criterion, they were uh, enrolled into the study and separated out into their groups, um, and they had I think three sessions with their therapist and their psychiatrist uh, team before they did the dosing day. So once they have all of their baseline stuff and during these baseline uh, measurements and and visits, I'm I'm thinking um, they have the participants come in and complete. Scales. So I think they use the Madras, which is the Montgomery uh, Osberg Depression Rating Scale. Um, And that's going to be something about the subjective experience of their uh, symptoms. Right. Um, And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in results across all of the trials. So they figure they fill this out at baseline. And then is the dosing day. So I wanted to point out that in this period of time where they're
0: meeting with their therapists, um, this is not only to serve as a way to like get acquainted with the study, but um, they build trust, get uh, education and preparation for the psychedelic experience. So they're letting them know, like, hey, this is um, going to be potentially weird, <laughs> like you know, yeah, um, yeah, stuff like that, but interestingly this is also what they call a run-in period um, which they wean off of any antidepressants or other central nervous system medications and they are discontinued for at least two weeks before the baseline that's pretty standard in these like psychedelic studies but it always begs the question for me at least well how are these medications that they may have been on for a really long time now they're getting off of them before the study how are those interfering with some of these
1: results, right? Yeah, exactly. Definitely something really, really important to keep in mind. And, and you're right to point out that this is also trust building, right? And preparing people for this experience. Um, this isn't a group of people that, um, are considered psychonauts or who have done psychedelics multiple times over and over again. So for the high dose group, this could have been, you know, a scary experience or e- something anxiety inducing. So those few weeks that they had with their therapist and their psychiatrist, I think also very, very important. But yeah. I know but- most yeah.
0: trials like do and like uh, preparation, like it's been pretty talked about, but yeah. I don't know like if they necessarily like talk about it in detail, but yeah. Um yeah i don't know just interesting food for thought
1: um okay so now we're at the dosing day what happens on the dosing day so the participants came in and they mentioned that these are non-clinical environments right these are supposed to be comfortable and places for people to come in and more or less you know relax during their trip so they would come in and then they were given their dose which by the way the psilocybin um, was synthesized by compass pathways Um, And I think it was tested for purity by an outside group. Is that right, Elena?
0: Yeah, so that's pretty standard when a company is testing. They want to get, you know, they want to test their formulation if that's the one that they have patented.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so also j- just a quick side note. So this is this trial is part of the Comp360 initiative from Compass Pathways, and that's under which the psilocybin is actually synthesized and then used and, and tested. Participants come in and they're given whatever dose of psilocybin um, they're assigned. Uh, they are told to put on a um, an eye mask. Is that what they're called? They're told to put on a little mask um, to encourage inward experience during the trip. And then for six to eight hours, the participants were allowed to lay on the couch or whatever it was. Um, and have their experience. Um, so this was considered day one. And then there were two integration sessions after this initial dosing session. And the first integration session is on day two. Um, and these integration sessions served as uh, time points for them to have the participants fill out that sc- uh scale again. Um, and also, for the participants to integrate the experience into their lives, right? The therapist sort of encouraged them to think about the, the experience and why it might have been important to them and what it might have brought up. And, you know, integration t- session, it was meant to help integrate the experience.
0: Yeah. And one thing that they noted is that the therapists were encouraged to not actively guide any sessions, yeah. to yeah. be there for support. So they're not using um, any to our knowledge, any like of behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy, they're just being there to like, be a support for the person going through the experience and giving them the ability to talk about it after.
1: Yeah, and sort of come to their own conclusions, right? Why is this important to you? What do you think um, was important about this experience? So yeah, definitely very cool. Um, So there were, uh, I think there was one primary endpoint, um, and there was supposed to be another endpoint that they couldn't reach. And we'll talk about that there. But the primary endpoint was three weeks after initial dosing. Um, And consequently, three weeks after the initial dosing is when um, is the time point at which they allowed their participants to start taking um, antidepressants again, if it was clinically uh, necessary, if their clinicians has, had deemed that these participants should start taking uh, their meds again. And Elena, remind me if I'm in, if I'm forgetting this, but um, some participants did start taking this uh, by 12 weeks, right? They started taking their antidepressants again by 12 weeks.
0: So there were some participants that initiated treatment um, for their depression during the trial before the primary endpoint. It was pretty okay, okay. low percentage. And then about a fourth to a third of each dose group had initiated treatment again by 12 weeks. So that's a decent amount of people.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: So like Zarmin mentioned, the primary endpoint uh, is a change from baseline to the three week scores in the questionnaire following psilocybin. And they're comparing those with the one milligram control. So that mm-hmm. one mg control is like kind of what they're Doing their overall primary endpoint comparison to, and then um, their secondary endpoints were um, the response. So they deemed response as a fifty percent decrease from baseline to week three, and that's like suggesting like this psilocybin treatment is potentially working. And then uh, remission would be a score equal to or lower than a ten at week three on. The uh, madras. So that's like um, symptoms pretty much gone. And then a sustained response was uh, what they classified as uh, the week three response was maintained all the way up to week 12 um, because this madras was given at baseline that day two that Zarmin mentioned one week, three, six, nine, and then 12 weeks. So there was a lot of uh, follow up here, which is nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so we can sort of follow uh, the Progress of these participants all the way across uh, those 12 weeks. Um, Okay, so let's hop right into the results. Before I do that, though, let's talk a little bit about the demographic and clinical characteristics of the participants. Um, So they were there, they note that they were similar across all three groups. The mean age was around 39.8 years, Uh, 52% of participants were female, and 92% of participants were white um psychedelics
0: may work for white people
1: yeah exactly so what a big caveat here right so we (laughs) did not have any sort of diverse um groups here uh I I will mention right 10 of these countries were in Europe but I will say that there are more than just white people in Europe and also in the U.S. and in Canada um (laughs) so this is something I think we need to address across psychedelic research um there are people working to actively do that um but always one of the biggest caveats to point out psychedelics really do work for white people (laughs)
0: and i do uh also want to point out they did ask if people had previously used psilocybin yeah so that's also good
1: yeah yeah and again these people were not like psychonauts right like taking psychedelics all the time or even like more than 15 times in their life or something like that. I think it was pretty modest psychedelic use um, across this trial, which is, which is also interesting and, and nice to see. Okay. So let's talk about the figure. So figure two, that's where the main results of this paper are. And we'll just, I'll just give you a quick over quick overview of what the results were. Mm -hmm. So at day two, So this is the day after the dosing day, they find that there is a decrease in those Madras scores uh, across the board, across all groups, right? That 1-meg, 10-meg, and 25-meg group. Um, And then at the, let's talk about the primary endpoint. At the primary endpoint week three, they're able to say that the 25-meg psilocybin group is significantly different from the 1-meg psilocybin group in that it is significantly lower, having significantly lower scores for participants um, across that, that drug dose. Um, the 10 Meg per keg group was not significantly different from the one Meg per keg group at three weeks. So yes. yeah. so what does that mean? in like regular words. So the high dose of psilocybin group uh, showed significant decreases in those Madras scores in the and that depression rating scale. Um, at three weeks as compared to the 1 meg and the 10 meg group and that 1 meg again is supposed to act as their control right because it's it's it might be active but there shouldn't be it's sub subthreshold. participants are not having a trip um, yeah. yeah
0: Um. I also want to point out in figure 2 some people might find this like be like why is the axis negative you know and so I just yeah. want to point out they're calculating this decrease as a mean change so like an overall change in the mean of the scores, not raw scores.
1: Yeah. Um, And also these, we're looking at a single point, right? Across all of these weeks, we're looking at a single point. So all of these participants, the 79 in the high mag, in the, in the high dose group, everyone's being averaged into a single point. So these changes across the board were not the same for every participant, right? Like you might have some participants that didn't show changes in the same Um, intensity as others might have even shown a a change in the opposite direction, but we don't know that by looking at this figure. These are uh, mean changes across participants within groups. Yes. Um, Okay, so that's the primary endpoint. And then by 12 weeks, um, we see that there are not significant differences across all three of the groups. But by eye, qualitatively, you can see that there are still Sustained decreases in those major scores um, across all groups, right? So that might yeah. say something about the fact that, um, because we're seeing this with the one meg per keg group as well, that good and consistent therapy can also be very, very helpful and useful in things like uh, treatment resistant depression. But um, yeah, it was pretty modest, honestly, results at 12 weeks. But yeah, not different from, in my opinion, not very different from the results that we have been seeing from these other trials that have come out before. Yeah, they're pretty consistent, and
0: you know, so that's the primary endpoint. So this, the secondary endpoints, um, interestingly, they couldn't actually say whether or not they were yeah. uh, relevant because um, they didn't have any significance between the ten and one dose. So they really couldn't do all of those extra comparisons that they wanted to because. Um, they didn't find an initial significance with the 10 meg, So that's interesting. I, I do appreciate that they did report that. Like, they were like, here's our stats for this. Just know these should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, you know, further studies are warranted to see if this is actually
1: a real effect. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I do also want to mention the 25-megs per keg group was associated with adverse effects. Um, there were some participants that experienced adverse effects, and I'm trying to find where they ha- they sort of quantify those. Um, but the 10-meg and the 1-meg group um, had significantly less adverse effects, if any. Um, yeah. So that's another thing to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, so the adverse effects um, that they categorize here, um, they categorize like, you know, less severe events, like they're pretty typical for psychedelics, headache, nausea, dizziness, fatigue, mm-hmm. you're especially at a high dose. Um, you're going through it, right? <laughs> like <Yeah>. you're tripping. <laughs> so that's pretty common. Um, the thing I think about this study that really caught a lot of people was the serious adverse events. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are things like increased suicidal ideation, which is very common um, with treatment resistant or just uh, reg- regular major uh, depressive disorder. And so uh, what they found with suicidal ideation specifically, um, they found that it was uh, worse in a cohort of participants from the three to
1: 11 week point.
0: Interestingly enough, the percentages were similar even in the one MG
1: dose. So um, also, interestingly, in the 10 meg group, there was also intentional self-injury in one participant. Um, and also suicidal uh, ideation in the 10-meg uh, group. So you do see this, right, like in, in both of the higher dose groups. So, Elena, your idea about, you know, psychedelics are probably helpful, but those really intense uh, symptoms like suicidal ideation, ideation non-suicidal self-injury perhaps, um, might not be fully helped by psychedelics, yeah. right? It's, it's hard to sort of capture the changes um, in, in that as well.
0: I was just going to say that's why this is so interesting, right, is because it literally says here, right, um, the ideation was reported by 27% of patients in the 25 make group, yeah. tw- or 36% in the 10 make group, and then 24% in the one make group. So that's, like, not a small number, like, you know. And then uh, the people who worsened over time – were also similar percentages uh, in the 25 and 10 MIG groups, and then a little bit less, you know, in the 1 MIG. So it's something to really think about when we're talking about treating these vulnerable populations, right? So when we have increases in suicidal ideation, it's not, uh, you know, the patient's fault. This is the part of their disease. And that's what I appreciate about this study is that they reported these things. So there's been a lot of talk from... Participants from other psychedelic assisted therapy studies who have uh, noted that their adverse events were not included in their paper um, or in the paper or in the analysis, and that sometimes these patients were left feeling like even worse. And that's so important to note. I know uh, it was reported that one person described it as feeling like they had open heart surgery and then were just left on the table after um, with no kind of direction about what to do with that experience and so that's why I think reporting these and talking about them is so important and we need to talk about what to do about the people that don't respond and like how that's okay it's not their fault
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: so yeah just before we get into kind of like what we liked and didn't like about this study because you know we will tell you um (laughs) we just wanted to recap uh the results real quick so in like two sentences or less The primary outcome, so the change from uh, the baseline to the three-week score for the Madras, uh, they found that the 25 milligram dose of psilocybin was significant. And it was significantly different from the one milligram of psilocybin. So what does that mean? That means that the large dose of psilocybin is potentially uh, helping people with their... uh, treatment resistant depression at three weeks and what they couldn't say was whether or not this was sustained um, significantly all the way to 12 weeks and whether or not the 25 and 10 milligrams stack up to each other so yeah further studies are definitely going to be needed with um, maybe like a, the 10 milligram but uh, overall I think you know kind of tells us something yeah uh, and then just wanted to say you know, this effect was associated, you know, this change in baseline scores, but they did report a lot of um, adverse events, including suicidal ideation in a large, not a large number, but a significant number of participants. Uh, So that is just something to think about, you know, um, are these experiences with psilocybin uh, difficult for some and not for others? Because it is, you know, known to increase that awareness of the self that can produce negative thoughts. So, you know, some people might have Um, a response to that experience that's helpful and someone else might have one that's hurtful. So I think um, one thing to go on in the future is that we need to be studying why it's not working in some people and not just focusing on the positive, like, oh,
1: this worked. Yeah, but for some people, they were like worse off, right? And going back to something that we talked about earlier, the therapists in those integration sessions didn't push participants to think of their experience Mm -hmm. as one way Or the other. So if someone had a really intense, intensely negative trip, you know, like, they weren't necessarily told to be like, Oh, no, like, this was good. Like, this is what you needed, right? Like, you took out of that what you took away from that. And of course, the participants were there, the the excuse me, the therapists were there to help guide your thinking and not make it super, super negative. But it really was self you know motivated and and internalized and internally motivated or whatever um, as far so I think as we that, know right yeah yeah exactly. it
0: does say in the methods right like these therapists went through a training program that was um, preparing for this trial it was like online learning in-person training clinical training and individual mentoring and webinars but we don't know really actually like how what? they were trained or what exactly. they were allowed to say or not say we just know that they weren't supposed to like Guide specifically. So that's something to also think about is like, we're all these therapists at every single site doing the exact same thing because
1: that could definitely, you know, change some stuff. Exactly. And also, interestingly, this is across countries, like across different cultures, across literally so many different political lines and socioeconomical lines. And although, you know, we did have a very monolithic group, we had 92% white people. Um, It is 92% white people with different cultures, right? Um, So I think it's really interesting to think about culturally sensitive approaches to psychedelic therapy. And I know that some people are very actively thinking about that here in the US. Um, But just thinking about how undiverse this population group was, right? I think it's really important to think about these scales, because these scales were standard across all countries, all of these sites, right? They're worded a very specific way. And it's important to think about some of the words might have different connotations as, as compared to other words, you know, for this person versus that person. And this participant might be taking it this way. They do assess, right, how participants are reading these questions and if there are any questions they're answered. Um, But I think it's really, really interesting that these, this one scale is being applied across all of these participants who come from all different backgrounds and, and different sort of countries. And they also mentioned that um, that is a, uh, a-, a limitation. They say a lack of an ethnically diverse participant yeah. sample. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what else, you know, did we like or didn't like? So what did you like here?
1: Um, so I think I, well, first of all, I think I love the fact that this is such a big study, right? And they did this study for across 12 weeks, um, which I think is something that we needed uh, to see. But that the idea of them not having asked the participants if they knew what dose they had gotten to me is like wild. It was, it's a simple question that you put in there and you ask. Um, And the reason that we're talking about this is think about the anticipatory effects, right? Like think about the placebo effect, the placebo effect exists because people expect res- uh, results, right? The expect placebo the name. Thing. Literally, right? Like it's in the name, right? So the fact that we didn't ask these participants what they thought they were getting, what they, you know, like what where they were in this trial, I think is crazy because the... That placebo effect, the effect of that anticipation and and their what they're hoping to get out of it is a very big effect. We've seen this in other trials. We've seen this multiple times in other psychedelic mm-hmm. studies. Um, and I think that's a major, major caveat. Why we saw decreases in that one med group as compared to their baselines, their pre-dosing uh, baselines, which were significantly higher, right? So
0: yeah it's yeah there's a big question out there right now is it placebo is it just the fact that these people are getting to take time out of their day to not do anything is it oh my god and and just yeah yeah, there's so many questions and i mean we can't assess all of it in one study but you could have asked hey you think you were high or not (laughs) yeah (laughs) but But yeah, and you mentioned the um, amount of people in this study, which is great. Like, they even did a power analysis.
1: I yes, love that. which is nice to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, a power analysis, for those of you that don't know, is is an analysis that you do before you start the study. Um, and based on the stuff that you're looking at, the so the measures that you have, um, you do this calculation, you run it through a formula, and you see how many people, how many samples, whatever type of experiment you're doing, you need to reach significance. You need to see an effect. That way you're not kind of just like scrambling to you finish and you're like, oh, my God, I don't think we had enough participants and we can't run these statistics, right? This is yeah. a more sophisticated way. And everyone should re- honestly be doing power analyses, but there are reasons you know, that they're difficult sometimes. But it was really nice to see in this paper. Yeah, for sure. Oh, there
0: was one other pro that I liked. I liked that. And we mentioned this before, too, that like 90% of the participants did not have any previous exposure to psilocybin. Yeah. Super important, um, especially like, you know, so these are people who have never had a psychedelic experience before, which could also be why, you know, they might have been having a harder time with that experience.
1: A hundred percent. I'd be very interested to know if those participants that experienced significant suicidal ideation or non-suicidal self-injury after the fact, if they had done psychedelics before. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I just like, I'm dying to know, and I was just talking about this with a colleague, but like going back to like the antidepressants and like, um, you know, getting back on your antidepressants or being off any CNS uh, drugs before the study, like, we all know that prolonged medications alter your brain chemistry and they alter behavior and emotions. Mm -hmm. So like one question I have is did the people who got back on their medication, because there was, what was it? I think a fourth to a third of each dose group had gotten back on medication um, by the 12 week endpoint. Were they included in the study? Are there, I want to see like the specific information on those subsets of people and how they were doing On the scores, did they have suicidal ideation? What would the results look like if those people were excluded?
1: Um, I just think that's... Yeah, super interesting. Or were they some of the participants that were driving the change, right? Like what were they that were were they the people that were really helped by having the psychedelic experience and hopping back onto their antidepressants or right. yeah, that would be a very, very interesting, I think, analysis. And I, or, I uh, mean,
0: you know, they, they have the data
1: so they could, yeah. t-
0: <laughs> Hey, if you're listening, can you send me share Share that with us. We'd <laughs>
1: love to make a couple of plots for yeah. you guys. And like, <laughs>
0: also, like we mentioned, like we don't have access to the supplemental because of the paywall. Like we could download the um the PDF yes, for some but reason, it,
1: but yeah. So
0: if anyone wants to send us a supplemental,
1: that'd be cool. Or send <laughs> us some money, whatever you guys prefer. Um yeah, no, for sure. I think um New England Journal of Medicine, please take down that paywall. Very rude and very um increasing you know, problems and lack of accessibility. So we want accessible science. Yes, we will fight for accessible science,
0: especially for the people who read the sensationalist articles that didn't even read for free. And like, yeah, so all these, uh, you know, general news media (laughs) articles are free and they all say psilocybin treats depression. They don't say psilocybin treats depression at a certain dose in a certain subset of people in a very controlled environment. And those people that are reading these that might be in vulnerable spots will now think that they can do whatever and that this is going to fix them, but they aren't able to actually access the data or, like, find it out for themselves because of the paywall.
1: Yeah. And please, oh, my God, please, if there's any reporters, any writers listening, please remember that you have a responsibility, right? Like, stop making these crazy freaking articles like it's not the cure to the world it's not going to fix everyone and it's it's you know every single time a paper comes out like this I feel like we're going to be screaming at the top of our lungs and the story yeah. doesn't change but yeah. um, whatever anyway <laughs> so great paper right yeah. I'm excited about the fact that this got published but I will say like you know expected outcomes we didn't I truly didn't see anything earth shattering groundbreaking I think I have more questions
0: <laughs> uh uh-huh. Every result yields more questions. And I think, like, my main... Like, the main finding I got from this is that there is a need for individualized psychiatric medicine. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely not. And imagine what we see.
1: Yeah. Imagine, like, the changes that we could see with that. I just think about... The biggest thing for me that I always look at when I read these papers is I'm Pakistani and I'm Muslim. I can't imagine my mom walking into one of these like psychedelic trials. And first of all, understanding what these these um, rating scales are and understanding like what is supposed to happen. So I, I think it's so, so important. You know, we need to start to diversify. And I, I wonder if we'll see differences in the results. And I mean, 100% we will, 100% we will yeah um but yeah anyway very interesting um very excited to talk to you about this elena i'm glad we got on to do this um and i hope you guys uh got something out of it yeah so thank you all
0: for listening and it's always a pleasure to have a little journal club um on your brain on science just want to give a shout out if you are going to be at the society for neuroscience meeting in san diego this next week find me i will have all the stickers for you um, and we can talk science and you know all that jazz so like always please subscribe tell your friends tell your family um tell scream it from the mountaintop uh and just let us know if there's anything you want us to cover
1: yeah and if you guys want to contribute in any way you have research you want to talk about whatever uh please go to psychedelicbrainscience.com to the contact us tab and there is a google form that you can fill out but anyway reach out to us um so sad I won't get to, get to see you guys at SFN but everyone that goes have a good time and have a good week anyway you guys and we'll catch you next time bye, bye.